was set in motion by the road trip that took him across America and home to the Pocono Mountains for the Christmas holidays, a journey that ultimately brought him to his present forlorn destination, a cell in the Latah County, Idaho jail, where he is being held without bail. He'd even had to get Brian into rehab to kick his teenage heroin habit. But now, the young man seemed to be on a good path. Studying for a PhD in criminal justice offered a promising career trajectory for Brian. At the garage near their home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, who'd serviced the car after the trip, that had caught him by surprise. Before Michael had headed out to Washington, he'd Googled the route back home. The quickest, most logical drive was pretty much a straight line, plowing across the country along I-90. Brian, however, button-hooked south towards Colorado, where he'd pick up I-70. It seemed to make little sense. But as she later related her unnerving experience to police interrogators, she shared one detail that at that time seemed small, if not irrelevant. The man in black had bushy eyebrows. And now, 16 long days after the murders, Brett Payne found himself staring at a photograph of a man who might, just might, be the intruder Dylan had seen walking purposely through her home. In the hectic days that followed, the investigators quietly went to work on Koberger, using cell phone data the techies on the FBI's cellular analysis survey team mapped his movements. Koberger, they methodically counted, had been in the King Road neighborhood near the murder site at least a dozen times over the past few months. Had he been stalking one of the victims? The residents? They wondered. And like Sherlock Holmes, whose canny deductions in The Adventure of Silver Blaze were prompted by the curious incident of the dog that didn't bark, they too found reassurance in a negative fact. The discovery that Koberger had apparently turned off his phone during the time when the murders occurred was further tantalizing knowledge. But it was not enough. They also sourly realized to persuade a judge to issue an arrest warrant. All they could do for now was store this intelligence away until another vital Part of the puzzle could be unearthed. The crucial eureka moment that would allow them to tie all the disparate pieces into a firm knot. A knot that not even the most industrious defense attorney could ever hope to unravel. In the meantime, though, they would need to keep a watch on Koberger. The entire country, or so it often seemed, was complaining that the case was dragging on and on without resolution. It would be a disaster, not just professionally, but also for their own peace of mind. If Koberger slipped out of their grasp before handcuffs could be firmly locked around his wrists, only now, as the suspect headed across the country in the very car they believed had been captured in the blurry surveillance footage, his father mystifyingly at his side 
they had lost him, even before the hatbox op could get underway. A mood of panic rapidly escalated into one of despair. Frantically, they began to search the records of automatic license plate readers, ALPRs, in nearby states. It was an exercise in futility. Nothing. Not a single hit. Then, they got lucky. A combat zone. There's not much to Loma, Colorado. There are just about 1,300 people scattered about on a few big farmsteads. But U.S. Route 6 passes straight through the center of the town. And eight years ago, the Colorado Department of Transportation thought it was high time to install Loma's first traffic light. It went up in 2015 at the bustling intersection of Route 6 and Highway 139. It wasn't long after that when the engineers decided they may as well fix an ALPR to the light pole. And on December 13th, it caught Washington State Plate CFB 8708, the white 2015 Elantra registered to Brian Koberger. With this sighting, the hatbox op was once again underway. The watchers would keep their eyes covertly on the car all the way to Pennsylvania. Fate had mercifully bestowed on them a second chance, and they were determined not to stumble. Still, they were not prepared for what happened next. Above I-70 was reassuringly blue. In Michael Koberger's calm and steady universe, there was no reason to suspect that the FBI was lurking in the shadows. Michael suddenly found his world starting to tilt off its axis. He abruptly had a new worry. It seemed, incredibly, that his son's stolid university neighborhood, the precise location just a stone's throw, in fact, from Brian's apartment, had turned into a combat zone. The details were this. Brian had received, and then apparently shared with his dad, a pinging alert on his phone. At around 3.20 a.m., WSU had issued an emergency advisory. The community was advised to shelter in place. As the Kobergers would learn by listening to news reports, earlier that evening, a man menacingly waving a rifle had threatened to kill his roommates. When the police arrived, the frightened roommates were released but the rifle-toting individual, Brent Kopaka, a 36-year-old Army veteran reportedly suffering from PTSD, barricaded himself in the apartment and made it clear he wasn't going to leave. With that defiant declaration, events escalated with a dangerous momentum. When the Whitman County Regional SWAT team approached the apartment, the gunman opened fire. The police shot back. Wednesday night, WSU students living near campus say they were preparing for their last day of finals. We had been finishing final papers in my apartment. We finished around, they were due at midnight, right? Midnight, yeah. So we finished around midnight. We were leaving to go get food. But when university students Kylie Canyon Brewer and Madison Barbon walked out the door, they ran into an unexpected situation. We walked out 
she walked out first, there was just a ton of people in the hallway. Cops. Pullman police responded to their neighbor's apartment at the complex just off of Stadium Way around 8.40 p.m. According to Pullman police, a man in his 30s was threatening to kill his two roommates. Police evacuated the building and WSU alerted students to shelter in place. Police say the suspect's behavior escalated and he began firing gunshots in his apartment. At the time I thought it was just really just fireworks or something like that, but very startling to hear. Students living on campus nearby say it was scary to know how close they were to an active SWAT situation. The Pullman A steely SWAT team sergeant shot Kopaka dead. This incident seemed, if his subsequent nonplussed conversations were any indication, to unnerve Michael. He had sent his son off to study for his PhD, not to get entrapped in horrifying events. Yet did the lethal shooting, the spectacle of bullets careening through his son's neighborhood, prompt the concerned father to discuss with his son the brutal murders of the four students just weeks earlier in a house a mere 15-minute drive from Brian's apartment? It is difficult to imagine that it did not. Raking over the gruesome Idaho case had in many quarters become a macrobay pastime. Would not for an anxious father make the leap from one calamity to another nearby? One also tied to a university? After all, they were seated nearly shoulder to shoulder in the narrow confines of the Honda for three monotonous days. They had to have found something to talk about on the long drive. Tedium is an effective catalyst, and the touchstones were limited. Were the stuff of a substantive father and son chat? The answers to these questions, however, are known only to two people, to be revealed, if ever, on their own violation. Might have come perilously close to bursting forth. Yet, while there are no recordings of the road trip chats, what happened in the Hyundai crept through Hancock County, Indiana, and had been carefully preserved. At 10.41 on the morning of December 15th, as the car approached the 107-mile marker on the interstate, Brian Koberger saw red and blue flashing lights in his rearview mirror. A sheriff's car was demanding that the vehicle pull over. Brian obeyed. He waited behind the wheel as the officer approached. What would happen next seemed destined to play out as high drama. At the very least, the car approximately fit the description of the vehicle observed in the aftermath of a quadruple murder. The driver the Moscow Police Department had alerted the nation was to be considered a person of interest in their investigation. As Deputy Nick Ernst walked with slow, measured steps towards the passenger side of the Hyundai where Michael sat. There seemed to be no escape. There would be no springing free. The time of reckoning had arrived. Only as the tape from Ernest's body can be revealed. A litany of non-sequiturs that seemed as if it had been inspired by a madcap Abbott and Costello routine. When the deputy officiously demands where they are heading, Brian's response suggests nothing more than a casual drive. We're going to get some Thai food right now. That's when the father decides it's his turn to play the straight man. Well, we're coming from WSU. To the Indiana deputy, the initials have no meaning. It's all beyond him. So both the father and son, eager to please, attempt to remedy the confusion. And in the process, only add to the officer's puzzlement. 
He can't decide whether both of them work at the university or who, in fact, is the student. Or if they've headed out from Washington State on a cross-country road trip to get Thai food in Pennsylvania. Then, even as the deputy is laboriously trying to sort through this befuddling torrent of information, Michael, who seems as if he could talk the ears off a brass monkey, starts rambling about the shooting earlier that day at WSU. This grabs the officer's attention. So what do you say about some SWAT teams? Michael now has the lead. He begins a long-winded explanation only to be cut off. Interesting, the deputy remarks without apparent interest. But Michael is determined to have the last word. Well, it's horrifying, he reprimands. Yet the son must have his say, too. With a graduate student's well-ingrained reverence for the facts, he corrects. We don't know about that, actually. We weren't there for the shooting. We're slightly punchy because we've been driving for hours. The father finally confesses. By now, the poor deputy is no doubt punchy, too. And in the end, perhaps eager to escape from this madness, he warns them not to tailgate and lets them go without a ticket. As the body cam footage ends, it is difficult to discern who is happier to be driving off, the Cobergers or the deputy. Yet, a quick nine minutes after they're back on the interstate, Brian again sees flashing lights in his rearview mirror. The Cobergers are stopped again. This time, it's a state trooper who pulls them over. Once more, at the very least, as these two unanticipated traffic stops played out, a knowing patience was not guiding the standard that December day. The agents were frustrated, and they were angry, the possibilities were too dangerous. Shared law enforcement officials with an arm's length familiarity with the FBI's surveillance operation was the watcher's helpless passivity. All they could do was observe from a distance and wonder. Had diligent Indiana lawmen spotted the car traveling down the interstate and immediately connected it to the white Hyundai that was wanted by the Moscow PD? Were the locals about to make an arrest? before the final incriminating piece had been fitted into the puzzle? If that happened, it had the potential to be a catastrophe. The suspect would be alerted, and perhaps then, if he was advised by a canny lawyer, the army of investigators would have never had the opportunity to make their airtight case. Their second concern, however, was a more dangerous prospect. Was the suspect armed? Would someone who they believed had killed four people hesitate to kill again? Would the highway cops become victims too? Or would the suspect simply gun the Hyundai and race down the highway? The spectacle of another OJ-like chase might be imminent. In the end, none of the apprehensive watcher's anxieties came to fruition. But a hard lesson, according to what other law enforcement officials heard, had been learned. The case had to be wrapped up soon. If not, anything could happen. There were too many imponderables. Time was not on their side. Be sure to check out my other videos and playlists for more true crime content. And if that's not enough, you can join our Patreon. Don't have a tinfoil hat? It's okay. We'll make you one. It's that easy. See you guys in the next video. See you later. Bye.